I was watching a movie uh, with Sylvester Stallone this weekend called Over the Top. So who wins in an arm wrestling match between Bob and Greg nowadays? <laughs> we, let's see. Come on, let's go. <laughs> Beautiful. You, it's like you've done this before, Greg. <laughs> All right, Greg, you ready? Yeah. All right, Bob, you ready? Yes, sir. All right. Timeout. Tyler, who are we taking the timeout with today? Well, thank you very much, Kevin. We got Greg and Bob Vanerick, father-son duo. The accolades are crazy, guys. They're authors, <laughs> they're leaders, they're entrepreneurs, they're business owners. So Bob and Greg. Uh, we got you two here today. We don't know how. Uh, we thank you so much. I was watching a movie uh, with Sylvester Stallone this weekend called Over the Top. So who wins in an arm wrestling match between Bob and Greg nowadays? <laughs> we, let's see. Come on. Let's go. <laughs> All right. Come on. Come on. Come on. Oh. <laughs> I think Greg won that one. Oh, oh, oh man. I don't know. I want a cool. rematch, though. I want a rematch. You guys want the gun show or are you good? Yeah. 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 We know that we know what you guys are packing under those, <laughs> those sleeves there. So, uh, in, in, in kind of that uh, same movie esque, uh, I got to ask, what's what's what was the one? movie that you two watched growing up and you guys could almost recite the words religiously together yeah so yeah i love chariots of fire personally this is a classic we, we watched it a long time ago this incredible story about the olympics with the, the sprinter and you know and the and the you know, all the tensions there about your integrity and your life and your relationships versus the sport and the competition all, all of this you know the co incredible context so Amazing, amazing film. Uh, I'm writing that one down. I already wrote that. Uh, that's on my watch list. And uh, how about how about Bob? What's what what movie comes to mind for you? Uh, well, I've got a lot of favorites. I could have said uh, Lawrence of Arabia or It's a Wonderful Life. But uh, speaking to a younger generation, my cousin Vinny is just a great <laughs> hoot. It's a great hoot. You got to put up with the little of the f word, but uh, it it's a hoot. My cousin. <laughs> that's a good movie i like that movie that's uh that's a that's a proud uh italian movie there i guess right i i, I can take some pride into that so uh then favorite actor Bond is classic will ferrell of that elk he's he's got a swedish wife as do i so i'm going to be partial to that but yeah i gotta say yeah meryl streep is pretty incredible so she you know, you can't argue with meryl streep yeah. That's amazing. So out of all the places you two have probably traveled, I mean, um, with your book launch that uh, I know you guys shared that father son moment. And uh, I recently shared the news with you guys that I'm now firmly in the uh, father category. And where was the coolest place that you guys got to vacation together or travel together? Yeah. So I'm going to go with a, uh, um, so one of the coolest family trips for me was with my brother, Scott, and I was on a sailboat on the Nile River in Egypt overnight uh, with, a, with a cook. And you know, after seeing the pyramids and this kind of stuff and jumping in the water, but I did get sick on the river too. So, you know, that, that kind of wasn't all great. <laughs> um, you know, but our family, we've gone to some great islands together. You know, I got to go with, uh, you know, Bahamas, uh, Martinique. You know, it's pretty, pretty amazing with the whole family. Some really fun experiences with music and activities. So, Dad, what would you say? Well, I think the trip that comes to mind was the one you and I took to Malaysia. Uh, we spent a week there introducing Triple Crown Leadership. We flew business class on Turkish Airlines to Istanbul and then out to Malaysia, where we were treated royally and met a lot of high government officials and uh, wonderful people. And Greg and I had a chance to frick and frack back and forth on leadership and just uh, spread the word around the world. And that was a very memorable trip with my dear son, Greg. Golly, and before we get into Triple Crown leadership and all that good stuff, I wanted to ask you, how the hell do you get into an Ivy League school? <laughs> uh, I'm from the south. It's just it's like a myth to us. It's like Ivy League, Northeast looks kind of cool and smart. I think it was a mistake, Tyler. 
<laughs> Clerical error. <laughs> it was a rounding error. It was a rounding error. <laughs> oh, what was your bit? What was your most fond memory? I went to a, uh, a business school in, in the Ivies. And, you know, I just have to say, you know, the, the people, the community of people there, I actually got to be roommates uh, in business school with my college roommate from years before as well. So that was really special reconnecting after, you know, 10 years or so. And, and just the spirit of that place was about business, uh, is about leadership for the good of business and society. So it was business, nonprofit, and public sector leadership too. So great wow. spirit around that. Wow. And One of the great something? memories for me of college, uh, Kevin, was the fact that I went to uh, Princeton, which is on the honor system. And it made a huge impression on me when a hundred of us would, would gather in a room and the professor would come and hand out uh, all the test booklets and little you know, essays you have to write. And then, you, uh, then he just left. And you had to sign at the time that I was there, many hundreds of years ago, Princeton was all male. And you used to have to sign, I pledge my honor as a gentleman that I have neither given nor received assistance. And you sign your name. And every single one of us took that very, very seriously. That had a huge impact on me, the honor code. And how, how do you, do you think that factored in at all to uh, some of the books and, and, and speaking engagements that you and Greg have done? I have no question, no question that it did. Triple Crown Leadership is all about being excellent, ethical, and enduring. Uh, we just expanded it just beyond that. But at the core of everything, if you lose your character, if you lose your integrity, if you lose your honesty, all else falls apart. So at the core of great leadership, of a great life, is integrity, honor. Well, going back to the Ivy League, I really want to hit on this. What is the, the difference between a public college and an Ivy League college? Will you just kind of educate me on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, uh, so, so I went to the Yale School of Management for my MBA. Uh, and, uh, you know, so I think the Ivy League just has a great sort of tradition of excellence, great reputation. You know, Dad just talked about the honor code at Princeton, some of the schools. You know, they've done very well in terms of the rankings and they've just had a tradition, a long tradition of excellence. We actually interviewed the former president of Princeton University, Dr. Shirley Tillman, for Triple Crown Leadership. So we had a, interviewed a range of sort of tech startup business, you know, large businesses, nonprofit, you know, small uh, government, et cetera. And so that was, that was a great interview. But, but I would also say as someone who has, uh, you know, been a product of higher education uh, here and abroad and taught. I taught for 10 years in Europe at uh, several different universities at master's level, executive level. I'd also say that um, you can get a great education anywhere. You know, if you find a good fit for you, if you really do your homework and find a place that shares your values, that has a good you know, community that you feel at home with, and you apply yourself and you're intentional and you're purposeful. And so, you know, there, there you know, certainly value in, in the big name schools, but it's most of it comes down to you and you, know, you, you get out of it what you put into it. And you can get a tremendous education anywhere with, you know, formal education as well as, you know, the informal, all the tools that we have today to, if you're hungry to just keep learning, growing and developing, which is part of what this podcast is all about. So I salute you for that. Yeah, thank you. thank you. It's been an awesome experience just learning from 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 wise leaders that have walked the, the, that crooked mile journey or that path. One of the things that um, now that I am in the father category, I have to ask Bob, what are you most proud of that Greg has been able to accomplish? Greg is probably the most extraordinary man I've ever met in my life. He is uh, I mean, all fathers are proud of their sons, but this goes way beyond that. He has a heart. He is courageous. He, he is so committed to helping people, to his daughters, to his lovely Swedish wife. Um, he amazes us with what he writes and how much he cares. He doesn't seek ego or title or the corner office. All he wants to do is help make the world a better place. And the fact that my 
my dear wife and I uh, are his parents gives us great joy. He's a man of extraordinary character and heart, and I love him and respect him and admire him. That's amazing. Yeah, there's some love right there. That felt good to hear. Now, Greg, yeah. growing up, how did you describe your dad to your friends? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, my dad is, you know, super proud of my dad. And I would say, you know, just tying it to the last question, too, is, you know, I went to some great schools and, you know, you know, education was a big part of what my mom and dad got for me. But I also went to the Bob and June Vanerick School of Life and I got a front row seat into what life is all about from my parents and their example of their their life and their marriage and you know the work that they did and the lessons you know my father's business career and collaborating with his son and putting his ego aside so that we could be partners you know and, and all this thing so you know that's been in, an incredible piece of my life where I just sort of what would my parents think or what would my mom and dad say or what would they advise me I've got that embedded in my in my voice and my life outlook and so I, I carry that with me with with everything I mean very very deeply so wow dude shines through and I, I jokingly say that little orange book sitting behind you is one of the books that really spoke to me I I, I sent probably I don't know maybe 50 pictures of uh, pages from the book and by the end of it I was like Tyler you know what you can just have my copy but I need it back um that shine through right in your book um and i know you two are we talking about triple crown leadership and you talk about um how important that was to you bob as as having that true father-son moment can you tell us when uh greg approached you to to write that book and what what that experience was like for you well i think it was about 2009 or so uh because the book came out in 2012 uh, and I had retired early at age 57, gone up to the Vale Valley, and I was kind of lost for a while because I had been through some really tough turnaround experiences. And I thought I wanted to ski and get a motorcycle and golf. And I did all that stuff, but I got pretty bored. Uh, and so I said, you know, we're not super wealthy, but we're financially comfortable. What do I want to do? And I decided I wanted to teach what I had learned the hard way about leadership. Leadership is an experiential process. And I experienced the highs and lows of it over 30 years. And then teaching it was a whole new experience. But I had always wanted to write a book. Greg and I had talked about writing a book. We'd even done some rough drafts, but uh, he had then become a student of leadership too. And so in that year, 2009 or so approximately, he called me and said, hey, Dad, I've got an idea. Why don't we now focus on writing a book together, father and son, as peers on leadership? And it took about three nanoseconds for me to say, wow, wow, yes. This is a multi-generational experience. This is, this is something we can share. But then he said, I want to write the definitive book on leadership. I don't want to just write something off the top of my head. You know, most CEO books are this is how I was great as a CEO or some academic. This is what I did as a consultant. He said, let's find out some of the greatest organizations in the world, large and small, for-profit, non-profit, educational, military, and let's go out and interview them uh, for, for what they're doing to create uh, a, a, a great organization. And when Greg called me in that year, uh, that was like you know the next three, four, five years writing the book, rewriting it, launching it, marketing it, all those kinds of things. I hope that gives you a flavor for what happened. Yeah, that's, that sounds like a pretty surreal experience for yourself that your son is now coming to you and something that you were so prolific in before him. And he obviously saw, idolized you in a lot of ways. I think that's just amazing to hear as, as a father. Greg, when you were thinking about approaching your father to write the book, did you think of absolutely anybody else that you wanted to write it with? No way, no way. I mean, just an opportunity. My dad and I had collaborated before. We're very close, so we have a close family. And I uh, just felt like it was a good fit of our both of our passions and sort of a, a way for us to learn, grow, develop, and give back. And, you know, my father ha has had a remarkable leadership career, you know, from, you know, uh, military, army, entrepreneurial, private equity, to businesses, to five-time CEO turnaround. 
And, and my career is very different. So I've been involved in startups. I've been involved in cross-sector, public, private, nonprofit, earlier stage. And, you know, and my dad uh, is, um, you know, he is a, a craftsman of leadership. I mean, he's, he, he is masterful with leadership. And, and yeah, I know this because I've seen it in action. I've talked to so many of his former colleagues and, and these kinds of things. And it's value-based. But he, he learned it. He went on a big journey. He didn't come out of the gates just kind of doing that. I mean, it, and he, he'll be the first to tell you he was messing stuff up big time early. And he just kind of... <laughs> learn the whole And so what was fascinating was to kind of bring that body of work of craftsmanship for my dad, to bring my smaller body of work, but a very different one. And we did these interviews and we had the five leadership practices of triple crown leadership, how to be excellent, ethical, enduring. And it was about head and heart. It was about purpose, values, and vision. It was about steel and velvet. It was about stewardship of culture and alignment. But what, what, emerged from that research and going deep and pressure testing each other and debating and dialogue with something even deeper than the five practices, which is what is the ultimate quest? What, why are you going to be a leader? Where are you going? And are you intentional? You know, Stephen Covey said, begin with the end in mind. And this goes back to sort of Aristotle, right? And so the ultimate quest was what kind of organization do you want to build through your leadership. And that's what led to the triple crown of excellent, ethical, and enduring. And so that became this sort of theme that emerged midway through the three-year deep dive on all the research and the interviews and the stuff that we were doing. That's what, wow. I do not know how I'm in this room right now. You guys are amazing. And I used to love to ask the question, like, what do you do for a living and all that stuff? And I got bored of that, y'all. So my question right now is, I'll start with you, Bob. What was the happiest year of your life? I think the happiest year of my life, and this is going to sound strange to you, is the last 12 months. Mm. You asked me 12 months ago, 12 months ago, I'd say the last 12 months. If you asked me two years ago, I'd say the happiest year of my life has been the last 12 months. I know we had COVID. I know we had deaths, I know we had pandemic, I know we had economic chaos, I know a lot of people couldn't say that, but you have to look at the circumstances, the hand that life deals you and say, what do I make of this? And in spite of COVID and the lockdown and the terrible political partisanship that disgusts me, that's hurting our country and hurting the world, my wife and I with our family and our close friends we seek to find the blessings in life. Uh, so I could go back to the year I was married. I could go back to the year I graduated from college or our first sons were born. Those were all great years, but I wanna make sure that the next 12 months for me, Tyler, is gonna be the best 12 months of my life. How, how do you start that in the morning? Like I'm gonna ask, how, you, two, you two guys, when you're putting on those socks in the morning, what is your mindset? What are you telling yourself? What is the motto, motto that you're repeating to yourself? Because it seems like you guys are looking to maximize each day and you're taking each day as its own blessing in and of itself and you're trying to maximize those 24 hours. What are, what are you guys saying to yourselves to, I guess, get yourself pumped up for the day to, to make sure and ensure that you do that? Yeah. I don't have a, uh, it's a great question. I, I don't have a, um, a mantra per se. It makes me think of kind of a mantra. Um, but I do try to start each day intentionally. I start, I, I wake up early and I like to either go for a walk and get moving or, you know, or a run. I also like to do some morning reading. And then, you know, if you can, if you could start the day with something really important and meaningful. So for me, like if I could get some writing in in the morning before things get too crazy, that's a really good start. And it just sets, sets up the day. And I think that's, that's really important. You know, obviously you can have a meditation practice too. And then, uh, you know, for me, what I try to carry with me through all my days is go back to what gives me a sense of purpose and what are my values and what are my vision. And so I, I wrote those out along with my strengths and passions and I kind of revisit that. And, and so I try, just try to keep that front and center and you can kind of feel it if you start drifting away, you know, too many days in a row from that, you know, you got to come back to that center. 
which feels really good. You feel energized, you feel enthusiastic. And that's often involved some form of not only enjoying life and feeling energized because you're connecting with people and you're adding value, you're, you're contributing, you're serving in some way. And so if you're not, you're gonna to start to feel empty after a while. I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. And, and Bob, how about for you? How did, how did you start your mindset when you were going in maybe to the, your first day into one of those turnarounds? Like what was your mindset walking into the doors? Well, um, it probably wasn't a very good one because turnarounds, <laughs> because, because turnarounds Kevin, are very, very hard. Mm-hmm. Um, people are going to be hurt. People are going to lose their jobs. Money's going to be lost. And, and so I, I spent a lot of years in those kinds of very tough situations. I, I, I think I have to take myself out of that environment and say, what did I learn from that? Mm-hmm. Because you're caught on this treadmill. You've got this craziness going on all around you. There are lawsuits there. There are people begging for their jobs. There are customers who are screaming, vendors who won't ship to you. And you have to try and make that whole. You have to rescue that situation. So um, I, I, I thought that was my life's work, rescuing uh, companies, organizations, instilling an ethical culture. But as I got out of that and I decompressed, and began teaching and began writing uh, with Greg, I realized that those were the lessons I had to learn. Because when I got up on that morning in the middle of the turnaround, as you just asked, I wasn't at my best. I was very reactive. I was very uh, driven, very intense to do certain things. Now when I get up, it's different. I'm much more focused on my purpose. My purpose is to make the world a little better place. To operate by my values, which are summarized in the acronym LIRICS, L-R-I-C-S, live with leadership, relationships, integrity, courage, and service. And so I'm a list guy. So I'll make a list of what I'm going to do the next day. And maybe it's writing a blog. Maybe it's meeting with somebody going for a bike ride. Later, later this week, I'm going for a bike ride with a friend of mine who lost his 49-year-old daughter to a 10-year battle with cancer. So I wanna bring my purpose and my values into each of those things on my list. When I ride with my friend, it's gonna be all about listening to him and the pain that he's going through. On my walk today for an hour on the hills of Colorado where we live, I was thinking about all the, all the issues in my life and trying to get more grounded. So I'm doing a much better job now, Kevin, honestly, of living my purpose and my values than when, when I was on that frantic hamster wheel, running, 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 thinking I'm getting ahead. And the good Lord is looking down and saying, you're not going anywhere, buddy. <laughs> yeah. Can I, can I just riff on that for a second? Yep. Uh, because, you know, one of the, the couple of things that I've learned from, from my dad and from experiencing leadership. So my dad used to say that, and I started out pretty skeptical of business early in my career. I was more driven towards a public sector and nonprofit. And then I've, I've experienced them all and I see value in them all and blending them. But, but he said, Greg, business is a set of relationships. It's, it's about people. And, you know, and I've heard him say, looking back on his career, what are you most proud of? It's like what we did together as a team, we built a culture under brutal circumstances and we survived and we thrived, we did our best, we had fun, we got to know each other deeply. And so, you know, as Heifetz from Harvard would say, the work is through the people and that those relationships. And that's just really stuck with me. And a lot of people, they miss that, you know, it gets too technocratic and it's about executing, it's about all these things. The second thing I'd say is my work now, I focus on leading self, leading others and leading change but very much with a focus on leading self. Because when you're asking Bob about, you know, what he was thinking about during the turnarounds, I mean, that's just a brutal situation, as Mm -hmm. is like a startup when things, and it's just, it's hard to get your head right, right? And so I think one of the big traps for all of us is the inner game of leadership and of life and is leading ourselves, including how brutal we are to ourselves, in judgment, you're terrible, I can't believe you, you screwed up, and to others. 
versus being charitable and having a growth mindset and whatnot in ways you don't shoot yourself in the foot because of the negative self, self-talk. There's a new book out on this where it talks about the soundtrack in your head from John Acuff. And I think this is so important, that, that mental game, that inner, and it's also kind of a spirit and your character and your integrity is, as my dad was talking about earlier. One of the things that you both had mentioned and we're, when we're talking about like the hamster wheel, right? And we're starting to hear things, Greg, and you're probably seeing it now too with the, the great resign they're anticipating where employees are gonna mass, mass leave organizations and then organizations are gonna be there saying, well, we need people. Why do you think after the last 18 months during the pandemic, and I know you guys have done countless interviews and sat down with, with some of the brightest leaders why do you think that is? Do you think people have the opportunity to come closer to center? Because I know in your book, Life Entrepreneurs, you talk about this ebbs and flows almost of finding center, coming off. And then you mentioned it earlier that you, you too find yourself sometimes coming out of center. Um, but it's how quickly you can get back into alignment with that mission, vision, and values, and purpose, and everything else like we've talked about. What, I guess, what would you say is why, why do you think it's happening today and how do you ensure that you find center when you find yourself off course? Yeah, the, the world today has been in sort of a, a kind of a collective shock, a collective trauma at the same time, you know, roughly for, for a year and a half, you know, different degrees for, for individuals in different places, et cetera. But it's been a very, it's, call, it's called the question, what's important? What is your life all about? What do you want to do? When you have you know people dying or people around you or the fear of it and you know all the impl- the disruption also economically and psychologically and whatnot, and I think what we're finding is that a lot of people have been kind of sleepwalking and unintentionally being caught up in overwork and giving away too much agency to you know their identity and to kind of being successful and this kind of thing. And uh, a lot of the sort of the bargaining power has been on the employers where they've got, you know, they have the jobs and the benefits and stuff. And you sort of, and then becomes this culture where everybody has to sort of give away so much of their life in order to be successful on that track. And, and, you know, I believe that's a false dichotomy and that this pandemic has really shaken things up where people are saying, wait a minute, I can succeed at work and I can work hard and I can have a life. I can be a good father, a good mother. I can be a good friend. I can be healthy. I don't have to, you know, and that it's not easy. You have to innovate. You have to try. And of course, there's seasons where you pay some dues and these kinds of things. But this whole notion of you have to kind of give away your life and then kind of enjoy life when you retire, you know, it's a false dichotomy. And I think the world is starting to wake up to that. And so managers and leaders and organizations have to think about what are we going to do? to allow people to thrive here and get stuff done and to have a life that we support where they're good human beings who are connected. That's where the future is going. That's conscious business. You know, that's socially responsible. That's values-based. That's where we need to head. You know, that's the future. Lee, that is awesome, Greg. Man. And I was just going to say, uh, I kind of have that feeling as of the uh, past four months of my life to be honest with y'all. Um, I feel like I'm uh, a kid off the Sandlot movie. I actually experienced the summer again. And it's almost like the, the less I try to control, I'll use that mm-hmm. word, the more something in this universe just puts things into play for me. And mm-hmm. I heard y'all both mention the word ego earlier. And I'd like to ask y'all, do you have any practices on kind of ego crushing yourself every now and then? Or what's the best ego crusher y'all have in your pocket? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll start on that. Um, Greg and I have talked about what is, what is the biggest uh, um, force that could cause your leadership to go off track. And the answer that we continually come back to is ego. And uh, ego run amok is, is just a disaster. And it's, it, it's very hard to see yourself, Tyler, as others see you you think you're doing the right thing. I mean, even the serial murderer thinks he or she is doing the right thing because they hear voices or they're trying to, you know, get rid of uh, evil in the world or something like that. 
So, so I think one of the best things that we can do is to have a small group of trusted counselors. They could be peers, they could be uh, senior people, but you have an agreement with them that you together will give each other honest, loving feedback because you can't do it alone. You can't see yourself as others see you. You're caught on that hamster wheel. The forces are hitting you over and over and over again. You think this is the worst it can get and next week it gets worse and you say, oh, it can't get any worse and it gets worse. It's really hard to be uh, calm and rational there when so many pressures are on you. And so you need to have somebody, uh, it could be a spouse, a partner, it could be uh, a relative, it could be a peer, it could be somebody that you admire, a mentor, but you have an agreement with a small group of people, give me the feedback that I need. I want it, I'm, I need it. I, I, I may bristle when I first hear it, but, but please stay with me. That, that's the best way I have found to keep one's ego in check. I think the other thing I would offer is, I use the metaphor of the observer. We get caught on this hamster wheel. And when I've been wrestling with something, I would go out and sit on the deck in the Vale Valley where we live there. And I would like to think that the observer came out of my head and looked down and said, Bob, what are you feeling right now? Why are you so upset? What's going on? What's running through your mind? And the, and the observer, which is your conscience or the spirit, the Holy Spirit, I don't know what it is. The observer is able to look and say, hey, wait a minute now, now. is what you're thinking about doing really right? Let's really back up and do this. So being able to go to a place of sanctuary, as Greg has written so often in his wonderful blogs, have a, face of, a place of sanctuary, be the observer of yourself, or have a trusted group of colleagues. Those are some things that will help get you out of your ego. Greg, what do you, what do you say? Yeah, one of the things we developed together that uh, has been helpful to a lot of the leaders we work with are what are the leadership derailers? The thing that take good people off the tracks with their leadership. And we all go off track, you know, with our leadership. So it's, you know, and, and, and we talked, the two mega derailers are ego and fear. And they're related ones because a lot of the ego stuff is really driven by this fear of not being valued enough, not being loved, not being perceived as good enough, of, you know, of making mistakes, of missing out. And so this is kind of a cycle here. And so, yeah, but the opposite of fear is love, right? And, and, and so, um, you know, I think a couple things that have helped pull me out of it, we, we talked to our friend Chuck Wachendorfer, and he says, my ego is not my amigo. So it's just kind of an easy reminder. I just always love that, you know, it's like, it, it'll get you into trouble. Don't get so full of yourself, right? And the other thing is to pull you away from that is, connecting with other people and contributing because it's not all about me. And then I'm, I'm going to feel happy if I feel like I've been of value and, those, and we're going to have a relationship that's reciprocal. And so those are just some simple things that get us out of that, the back of our brain with the fear and the ego and sort of be, you know, be really um, using the best parts of, of all of us. Mm -hmm. One, one story I'll, I'll, I'll share to build on the point that Greg just made is that both he and I have given uh, lots and lots of speeches around the world. I, I, I've certainly been in the thousand plus speeches. And early on, I, I, I had a speech impediment. I had to get over that. I had to learn how to do public speaking, making eye contact gestures and things like that. But some people that, that I valued said, that was a really good speech. It really looks slick. I didn't like slick because slick is what am I doing to look really good, to sound good and all those kinds of things. And so you kind of got to kind of got to work your way out of that. And later on, as I was doing my leadership workshops and giving presentations, I would say a little prayer before I went on stage. And I would say, it is not about me. It is all about them. Them. I love them. I want to serve them. They're going to come there with their 
problems and their issues. Some will sit with their arms crossed. Some will be ready making notes. Some will be recording me. What can I do for them? It's all about the relationships, it's about serving, it's about giving. It's not being slick and mastering public speaking so I can sound and look real good. It's about being honest. My best leadership workshops when I, when I told the stories of when I was fired, when I was humbled, when I did bad things and the lessons that I learned. And I say, I'm sharing with you now in four hours what I've learned in 40 years. And you don't have to have 40 years. Listen, because I'm giving it to you. It's from my heart. And that's when we really connected. And that's, that's I've always been, I was just talking to my grandfather. First, my first call uh, after the child was born, I called my parents and apologized for all the bad things that I did. Because <laughs> that was my first real-time experience where I was like, you just wait, Kevin. You just wait until you have kids. And then I had a kid and I was like, I am so sorry. Um, but sometimes, like you, we've both talked about, we, we've gotten off course, right? Maybe we made a non-ethical decision. How do you guys coach leaders that have come off course to get back on course? Like, what is that first step to take that next step in that journey to check the ego and move forward and create those environments in which we're talking about today that is more fulfilling for all employees, not just themselves? What is that first step that you guys typically recommend in, in your conversations? Yeah, so... Awareness, intention, decision, and, and I would say clarity is part of that. Often we get off course and we're not even aware of it. You know, it's subconscious or we're just kind of, we're so busy that we're not taking time. We don't have a process for tapping into the observer that we were just talking about or sort of checking up on things. Uh, and then we're not also seeking feedback because of our ego. We're kind of resistant to feedback as opposed to being and one of the masterful things of, of good leadership is, is seeking feedback proactively and giving feedback in ways that it can be received. And so then we can bring it into our awareness and see the damage of it and then set an intention of, you know, I want to do better. And, and, and then to be very action oriented, get it out of sort of just thinking about it and start getting some momentum, uh, you know, and so you sort of act on that. And but, but you got to have clarity back to who am I? What am I all about? What are my personal values? What is my sense of personal purpose and my personal vision of the good life and good work for me? And then that can be kind of a safe harbor that you come back to when you've been pulled off. And it gives you, you feel an energy. You know, if you've done that really well and you've vetted that, and you reread that or you think about it, it's like, yeah, that's the real me. That's what I want to get back to. And you're just hungry to get back to you know, that better track that's available to you. And Greg, Greg, do you do similar like scorecards? Because I know you touch on it a little bit about setting up those scorecards. And I know your father, he was the one that, that suggested that I did it. So I, 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 took, I took his word for it and I started to create my own. Is that something that you've instilled in common practice? And I don't think that you do it daily, but how often do you check those scorecards and what scorecards are you keeping? Yeah, and so I do. I have a, uh, and so a life gauge, which is sort of evaluating life in different dimensions, you know, personal, family, career, education, fun factor. You guys seem to be okay on the fun factor on this podcast. You're, you're scoring like an 11 on that. At least. At least right? That guy from the South makes it real easy. Uh, uh, you know, a, uh, a traps test, you know, kind of what, what are common traps that I'm falling into? And then going, as I said earlier, I've got this sort of one and a, one and a half page document that I've had for 12 years now, which is purpose, values, vision, strengths, passions, aspirations. And that grounds me. And so, so I have a, and, and for me, it's important to calendarize it. And so I have like monthly review and then there's scorecards too, for like business stuff too, you know, uh, but I, I, so monthly sort of quick checks, deeper quarterly reviews, and then an annual deep dive. I can't say that I'm, I'm religious about it, but I'm always, you know, that sometimes it doesn't slip a bit, but I've got to calendarize and I found it very helpful to sort of, because you can really get lost inside your life and the business without stepping up to the big picture. You know, and, and again, that's one of the big traps. Bob, anything you would like to add to the scorecards and, and how you've kept yours over all these years? Sure. Well, I, I think when one has made a mistake, one has to 
engage in three activities. And the first activity is admission. And the second activity is to apologize. And the third activity is amends. So leader, people are, people are under the uh, false impression that leaders are omniscient and, and you've gotta be perfect all the time. Everybody knows you're not perfect. And uh, many leaders are afraid to admit a mistake. They're afraid to say, I don't know. They're afraid to say, I'm scared. You know, I don't know what we're gonna do here. And I've gotta look like I know what I'm doing. People are gonna see through that. I, I mean, I had all those facades over the 30 years that I was in the turnaround business world and I saw that they didn't work. And, and, and I made many mistakes. And when I finally got the courage to say, hey, I admit I made a mistake here. And secondly, I'm really, really sorry. And I'm not just saying this because now I wanna make amends and here's how I'm gonna make amends. And you know what? I may make another mistake, but it's okay. And you have my mandate to call me on my mistakes. I want you to let me know do it perhaps lovingly or privately so it's not too embarrassing, but I need to hear it so that I can then admit I, make it, admit I, make, I made a mistake, apologize and show you how I'm gonna make amends. And you need to do that publicly. You can't just do it privately with somebody you've hurt because you've hurt them in front of others or they've told others. So when I was able to go through those three steps publicly, my credibility with the team, because it took all of us. It wasn't Bob that did the turnaround. It was all of us, sometimes right down to the factory floor. And we had to get those people committed, committed from their heart that they wanted to do it. So you had to go through some kind of fire like that to say, I screwed up, I'm sorry, and here's how I'm gonna fix it. Mm -hmm. And I, staying in the same groups, because I know you would give groups a, a business challenge, one, one project, and you would say, here's the project, here's your budget, here, here, here you go. What were the three things that you told that, that group before they kicked off that project? <laughs> well, in, in my turnaround work, I, I often found uh, that, that the answer was within the people. It, it wasn't Bob coming in because he was so smart. I, you know, I'm a little above average probably. But, <laughs> but, but, but if you enlist those people you find, and, 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 and so I was in one brown bag lunch and this young engineer had a, wonderful idea about how to solve this problem. And I asked her to go up to the board and she outlined it. And we, we said, all right, you know, would you lead that project of a cross-functional team? And she said, oh, I can't do that. I'm just an engineer. And everybody in the room at that brown bag lunch knew that she could do that. And the cross-functional team had to have other people on who were higher rank than her. They were, you know, directors or supervisors and she was just an engineer. So she finally agreed. And, and as I repeated that process, I came across three phrases to help people overcome their fear for taking on a project. Because the key, Kevin and Tyler, to, to uh, great leadership is to unleash other leaders. It's not just you. It's not just you, Tyler, not just you, Kevin. You've got to unleash that young lady who said, oh, I'm just an engineer. And so I learned three phrases as and I practiced them. I saw how powerful they were. So let's pretend I went to that young lady and, and she said, oh, I can't do that. And I said, uh, well, I, I believe you can. Um, and, and here are three reasons. I believe in you. Kevin, I'm gonna look you in the eyes. Pretend you're that young engineer. Kevin, I believe in you. All right. Kevin, Kevin I trust you. I trust you on this project. And Kevin, no matter what happens on this project, I promise you, I've got your back. Yeah. I believe in you, I trust you, and I promise you, I've got your back. And I never had anybody say, well, oh, oh, I still can't take it. They all stepped up and they all did a great job. And that was the start of a leadership growth trajectory for them that was unbelievable. That's the way you fix our problems, unleashing those people together. They probably already know the a lot of the, the, the challenges that the business is facing and they get to live it on a daily experience. And then they too then have the opportunity to, to share back. And I call that intellectual capital. I call it social capital, whatever you want to call it. 
in the organizations and Greg out of, because also in life entrepreneurs, you also interviewed over 50 um, leaders as well. Out of all the people from triple crown to life entrepreneurs, what was the one thing that was most surprising to you um, at the end of all your experience and all the books? What was the one thing that surprised you most about leadership? Um, I, I think the uh, extent to which it's possible to, to have an integrated life, you know, the, the, you know, and I guess surprised, but also impressed me would be these people who could do incredible things. As, for example, social entrepreneurs, they'd start a company, they would grow it. They would be you know, doing guerrilla marketing and creative and things would be going viral. They'd build a culture and, and, and a team. Uh, and they'd also be jamming in a jazz band with their friends and they'd go on, on these epic bike ride you know, trips uh, to Europe and uh, or Mount Shasta. And they would be, you know, they would, then they'd start a winery together as a couple and they would, you know, take time out, you know, and so they would, they would organize their life such that like everything didn't run through them and they had to control and be the bottleneck. And, and as, as Bob was just talking about, people were unleashed and people had a sense of ownership and agency. So the place didn't fall apart if Tyler wasn't making the call or Kevin wasn't, you know, doing this kind of thing. And so just seeing you know, uh, that it is possible to do that, you know, and it's, it's very, very powerful. That's amazing. Yeah, and I'm not, I'm not sure if Kevin knows this, but he's the one who unleashed my beast for me, you know. Uh, he got this wild razorback out of the trough of Arkansas, I'll tell you that much. And we all keep talking about it's not about me, it's not about us, it's not about you. That was one of the coolest lines I've ever heard in my life. When someone looked me in the eyes and said, dude, it's not about you. I said, well, thank God, you know, that feels all right. And I get to empower someone else and, and unleash some other beast out there. And there's nothing cooler in the world than you see another beast being unle unleashed out of their cage. Because that just sharpens my tool and my sword even more. And it just goes on from there. But it's so hard to describe and explain that to folks in my experience. If you haven't gone through that experience yourself. Mm -hmm. And just hearing a father-son duo get it. Golly, y'all are, are, are blessed folks, man. I mean, it takes a lot of people to meet a guy like Kevin, a guy like Greg, and a guy like Bob in my lifetime. You know, so I was just wanting to know, what's the biggest mess up y'all have ever done, Bob? You said you got fired from a job. Can you, can you let us know where you got fired from and why? Sure. It was uh, early in my career when I was uh, CEO of a small company owned by some venture capitalists, and I wanted to build it up and take it public. And uh, unbeknownst to me, they sold it out from under me to a New York Stock Exchange company and didn't even tell me about it. And I was really angry. And I came in with a chip on my shoulder and didn't like the new acquiring parents. So I had a really bad attitude, you know. And so, so the group vice president came in one day and fired me. And I had had nothing but successes in my life until then. Those were back in the days you didn't have severance packages and outplacement counseling and all that. It was just a huge embarrassment. And um, I just had to pull myself uh, up by the bootstraps out of that. And then later on in my career, I was doing a turnaround and it was a, it was a, 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 a very unethical set of practices that had engaged, uh, that, that had been in, engaged there. And I, I learned that the board was highly complicit in that. And I lost all respect for the board. And I had to do some business things, take away money and perquisites and get rid of some board members who had conflicts of interest and things like that. But I think the mistake that I made there was that I, I had lost respect for them. And that showed in my eyes. And uh, I, I, I didn't handle myself as well. And so after the turnaround was complete, um, they came in and uh, fired me, e even though uh, me and the team had done a great job. But that was a lesson. So I can blame them for being complicit in certain things, but I have to take some ownership too, because I didn't handle myself well in that first situation when I was young, in that later situation when I was older. So whenever I've been humbled, I go back and say, how much skin do I have in this game? 
when something unfair happened to me and I felt like a victim, I got to go back and say, well, now maybe I'm not 100% innocent. Maybe I've got 40, 50% of the blame here. And what do I learn from that? You know? And life's a constant journey and a, a constant learning experience. And Greg, I know you touched on that. Is it's a, you, you mentioned how you read every day. I think sometimes people forget that it, life is a constant learning experience, whether you're doing it through the actions or actually you're doing both, uh, both read through, through education, but also maybe life experiences as well. As we're finishing up, now our typical end is we ask you interview questions. I'm kind of tossing that aside because I, I really wanted to ask um, one question and, and, and I ask it to each of you and we'll, we'll close on this. Um, when you are asking yourself who you are, right, at your core, I think we as humans are so distracted right now with social media, with sports, with, um, uh, with, with life itself. How, what is, I guess, the first thing to, to start that journey to find who you are, like find that purpose, find that vision, find that mission that you're on? What, what, is, what, is, what is your values? What are your ethics? What is that first step in that journey that you two would recommend to our listeners? I think that uh, finding who you are and your sense of purpose is, to your point, Kevin, it's the journey of a lifetime. And it's just not something that you sort of get and it goes away and you're one and done. It's all good. You can, you can get a good run from it, but then you're going to hit something and, and a lot of people struggle with it in part because it sounds so abstract. It's so different from our day-to-day -day experience. We don't talk a lot about it. We don't go through this stuff in school typically. People, some people discount it, this, this soft stuff, this is weird, you know, mm -hmm. and, uh, but it's so essential for grounding you. And so, I mean, paying attention, I think, you know, with the, an inner voice to what feels right versus where you feel a little bit, you know, you got this gut instinct, right? What feels meaningful? What fills you up with energy? I think the things that you're good at are a little bit of a clue of kind of who you are, what you're meant to do in the world and what you're passionate about, what energizes you versus the things that just sort of drain you. So there's all sorts of clues we're constantly getting and they're just falling on the floor and we're deaf to them, you know, cause we're not listening. We're so busy, we're so focused. Uh, in this kind of thing. Uh, and, then, and then you have to also get out of that sage mode and get out of your head and start trying things. Mm -hmm. you know, I'm going to do a new podcast here. We're just going to bump up against the world and see what we get back and are we getting traction and what's working well and what isn't. You know, and the thing, you know, those are things that are so often evidence that you're on a path that is good for you, but also that is, you know, that is helping people in the world and you get evidence through people are paying for it or people are listening or people are saying, I like that, that helped me. And so you got to get out your warrior and sage, you know, you got an action and reflection, you know, bouncing back. I love that. I love that. Thank you, Greg. And, and, and Bob, what, what would you say? Well, I would certainly endorse everything that Greg said there, um, but I, but I want to add to that, and that is I think we as human beings are more than just a body, more than just a voice, more than just a mind, more than just an ego. I believe we have a spirit, and I believe that spirit connects with other spirits and connects with something that we call God or Allah or the prime mover or whatever. I just happen to believe that personally. And when you talk about purpose, when you talk about your personal values, and you talk about getting out of your ego, overcoming the fear, I think that starts with connecting with your spirit. <laughs> Don't just think about what's in it for me. How can I look good? How can I get more? How can I impress them? because you're dealing with all your human stuff. Your spirit wants you to say, what can you, how can you make the world better? How can you relieve some suffering? How can you bring some joy? So the sanctuary that Greg talks about, the observer, you know, the trusted friends, the character that is at, at, at the foundation and the courage, the courage that it takes to live by character all those are touching from your spirit. 
So I would say the starting point might be, and I wouldn't have said this 10 years ago or 20 or 30 years ago, connecting with your spirit inside. That's the powerful message. Very, very powerful. Because I think that was my, when I was reading the book, um, that was one of the hardest parts, Greg, I think is thinking about yourself. I think sometimes we're so focused on what does that person think? How, how can I, how can I make that person like me? And that's one of my, my shortfalls is that I was constantly trying to appease everybody else but myself. And Tyler, as much as I've helped him, that was one of the things that Tyler pulled out in me. And I think sometimes to your point, those small groups that you mentioned earlier, Bob, this is a small group between me and Tyler, and we've shared our life experiences and really have kind of not tried to hide anything about what we've gone through, um, through our life's journey. And I think that, that he keeps me honest. He checks, he checks my ego. He'll tell me when I'm doing good, when I'm doing bad. And I think it's that, that, that building that trust component is so important. Um, you are obviously one of the godfathers of trust. So my last question for any organization that is now trying to rebuild a culture that they may have sown some distrust or they went through a very difficult journey through the pandemic and made some really tough decisions, how can they start rebuilding that trust internally? Yeah, and, and let me just start by saying that this is what people say they want the most out of leaders. They want leaders who are honest, who have integrity, who have character, and who I can trust. Those are by far the most important things. We, we also want them to be able to be competent and to have vision and to be relational. But if you don't have those core things, game over. You know, it is flawed from the start, right? And so, uh, you know, I think that um, being human, showing your authenticity, and I, I am the leader and pretending like we were talking about earlier that I have the answers and everything. You know, it's like, no, we together, we're going to lean on each other. We're going to figure this out, you know, and part of that is going to be vulnerability, right? And so this is where you have to put that ego aside that we we're talking about earlier. Dr. Brene Brown has done some amazing work on this, bringing this to the world. Of like, you know, that's where we can have connection with other people because I'm not getting the perfect avatar of you. I'm getting the real you. And in the real you, I see pieces of the real me. And I feel like it gives me permission to be the real me without being judged or put down or shamed and these kinds of things. And so the other piece of that is I need to be trustworthy, you know, to earn your trust. And so I need to do what I say I'm going to do. And when I screw it up, I need to apologize genuinely and make amends like Bob was talking about earlier. Right. And so and then we start developing relationships where we have the speed of trust and the power of trust and this connection. We have this beautiful thing that you two have, you know, Kevin and Tyler, you have this amazing partnership that's fun, but it's deep and you, you bring out the best in each other. And that's, that's precious. That's what we all want in our family, in our colleagues, in our buddies, et cetera. But it, and it's a little bit rare. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. Greg, that was, that was just great. I, I just want to add to that. Um, something I learned in the crucibles of turnarounds and life that I was in so many times, whenever there was a problem, and, let, and, and, and let's take trust now as the problem, you've got to make that a priority and share it with everybody. You've got to give the trust issue to everybody. Hey, in this pandemic, we've made some mistakes. So I've got to admit those mistakes. I've got to apologize, got to, I, I've got to make amends but we have to rebuild trust. We will never get to where we wanna be as an organization if we can't trust one another. I am a part of that problem. And perhaps some of you are a part of that problem, but I'm now making that a priority. I want trust to be on our agenda. I want trust to be on your agenda. I wanna hear about trust in meetings. I wanna hear your ideas. I wanna read the books. I wanna read the articles. You have to, if, if we want to unleash other leaders, we have to give them the real problem, the real problem that we're wrestling with and say, I can't do this alone. I need you. Trust is now a priority for us because we've screwed it up. I've screwed it up. Help us. Let's work together. And I promise you, if you do that, you will be amazed at what will come to you. You will be blown away at what people will come to you with that will fix the problem. 
That's the way you turn around, whether it's a trust issue, a character issue, uh, you know, whatever, uh, an honesty issue, that's the way to do it. And, Put it and, on the table and shit, say it's ours and I'm open. And take action when people are violating the trust. People need to see, because a lot of people avoid it, even leaders, it's awkward, you know. No, no, they need to see you defend the values and, and take action with the steel. That's where the steel versus the velvet so that they know this isn't just pablum, this isn't just talk. Bob just put his money where his mouth is. And so no, this stuff is real. I love that line, defend the values, because I've seen and I come into a number of organizations and you see their missions, visions, and values, but if the leaders themselves are not defending those same values, they might as well not even put them on the board. So I, I know I wanted to thank both of you so, so much for accepting to be on this podcast. And everybody knows I, I'm a note taker. I have about five more pages of notes from, from this, this to, to really digest myself and, and internalize. And um, I will be happy to share my scorecards with you guys when I got those finished up just to get the less checks, less checks and balances from, from two experts. But I just wanted to thank you, Bob, and thank you, Greg, so much for, for coming onto the show with us and sharing your experiences and your life journeys with us. So we too can hopefully find ourselves uh, to move forward and uh, find out where, what is our North star and where are we headed um, as a person. So thank you for that. Thank you for having us. This was great. And thanks for all you're doing. Appreciate I'm it. I'm so excited about you two young gentlemen. You have such a bright future in front of you. You are the ones that uh, we're counting on to make the world a better place. Well done, thank gentlemen. You.